You are listening to Pursuing Justice. I am Harriet Handel. If you've been following us for the previous two podcasts, you've met Gia Wirtz and Jeffrey Deskovic. Gia is a documentary filmmaker who made a short documentary about Jeffrey, a man accused of a crime he did not commit and spent 16 years in prison from the time he was almost 17, just 17. He has been out of prison since 2006. Welcome to you both, Gia and Jeffrey. Thanks for having us, Harriet. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Let's begin with you, Jeffrey. Um, and what I want to ask you today is to tell us about the challenges that you faced as you re-entered society. How did you handle the hurdles? Specifically, what were some of the hurdles? Technology was different. Internet, GPS, cell phones hadn't didn't exist. Uh, I handled that by trying to learn one piece of technology that I, you know, something technological one one a day. Uh, cult, culture was different as well. Um, cities and towns did not look the same. People looked different. Uh, there was a psychological after effects. It was con it's common for people who've been wrongfully imprisoned to have post-traumatic stress disorder and related symptoms like panic attack, anxiety, feeling of processing things at a slower speed, feeling of having been frozen in time. So I dealt with that by seeing mental health professionals four times a week for six years. There was stigma. I was in prison for 16 years wrongfully, yes, but I was there for 16 years. So how much of that rubbed off on me? Was it safe to be alone someplace uh, with me? Uh, it was. Uh, it was very. It was very lonely. Uh, I was released with nothing, and so I lacked. You know, it's hard. I lacked stability of housing because I was always passed over for gainful employment. I was making money doing speaking engagements, but that's not a consistent form of income. Uh, I caught on as a weekly columnist, but the newspaper only wanted one article a week. So I avoided the homeless shelter through. Mercy College, which had given me a scholarship to get the bachelor's degree. They allowed me to live on campus and they gave me the meal plan. Uh, later, I would, uh, Human Development Services of Westchester agreed to rent an apartment for me because I fit the mental health uh, criteria. And so I just had to give them 30% uh, uh, of whatever I made in, in, in the course of a month, even if that was nothing. And so that was how I came to have some stability of housing. Mm. Um, I. I, uh, I, you know, I took about five years and then I eventually was compensated. I had never before lived on my own. I never had had a driver's license or went shopping or balanced the budget or wrote a check. Uh, I, I did, I did have somebody who, uh, the dean of the college took me shopping once and bought the, selected the uh, cleaning products and I would used to save the containers and then bring them back with me to the store so I knew what to, what to purchase. Right, right. Oh, so many, so many challenges. Um, Gia, I wanted to go to you and um, ask you, what was the reason that Jeffrey's particular case stood out for you? There are so many stories of people being exonerated. 
Uh, today, there are now close to 2,800 exonerations since records have been kept beginning in 1989, according to the National Registry of Exonerations, which I love to, to quote from. Uh, what, what was it about Jeffrey's particular case that spoke to you? Can you hear me, Gia? Gia, can, are you having trouble hearing me? Gia, can you hear anyone? Her computer is frozen. Harriet, Harriet I can hear you. Can you hear me? Harriet, can you hear her now? Yes, now I can, but I just, I asked you a question and you didn't respond, so I was thinking you couldn't hear me. Yeah, I guess okay. I was talking and you couldn't hear me. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right, I'm going to count you down again and Harriet, okay. just ask your question again. I will. All right, going in three, two, one. All right, now I'm going to ask uh, Gia a question. Um, was there a particular reason that Jeffrey's case uh, stood out for you? There are so many stories of people being exonerated and wrongfully convicted. Today, we are now closing in on 2,800 exonerations since records have been kept beginning in 1989, according to the National Registry of Exonerations. And now I'd like to ask you, Gia, a question. Um, was there a reason that Jeffrey's particular case seemed to stand out for you? There are so many stories of people being exonerated. Today, there are now close to 2,800 exonerations since records have been kept beginning in 1989, according to the National Registry of Exonerations. So what was it that spoke to you about his case? What spoke to me about Jeff's case initially, as I mentioned, I was introduced to Jeff's case through my interest in Adnan Syed's case, who was a subject of Serial. And what really, really struck me initially is that there were so many similarities. They were both innocent. They were both in high school when the crime occurred. They were both wrongfully convicted of murdering a high school classmate. Uh, there was just so many injustices and so many similarities. And um, when I had hosted a fundraiser for Adnan, I was introduced to Jeff by a mutual friend. And because she knew him personally, I was able to meet him in person. And you know, fast forward to when I made the film years later, Jeff was the only person that I knew myself that I had a direct connection to who had been through this kind of ordeal. I see, I see. And how did you um, broach the idea that you would like to make him the subject of a short documentary? You know, I, I just called him one day mm -hmm. and asked him. Jeff and I had briefly stayed in touch over the years here and there. At one time we met for coffee and I was picking his brain about what can somebody like me do to help people who are wrongfully convicted. And his opinion really carried a lot of weight for me because he's been there. And I thought, you know, what can somebody who's not a lawyer, who who is doesn't have a podcast, what can I do? And we had a really great conversation about that. And so we had just kept in touch here and there. And so when I decided to go into filmmaking, it was the first call I made. 
And I simply just, as I said, I really wanted to talk about how an innocent person reintegrates into society and how do you fare well, you know, with the rest of your life once you've lived through this horrific episode in your life. And uh, Jeff's found that really interesting because he said uh, that's not something he's talked um, a lot about. That's not what people usually ask him in interviews. And, uh, and that's where we started. And I didn't even know if it was going to be a short at that time, actually. We just oh. started filming and saw where it went. Right. Very good. Um, and, and now let's get Jeffrey back in here. Um, Jeffrey, uh, you talked about all the challenges, and I'm sure you haven't mentioned the full list, um, but um, who helped you reintegrate into society? Um, and is there easy access to in terms of support for someone like you. In, in 2014, there was an article in the New York Times about you entitled, Exonerated, Now What? And this is something I think uh, very few people know, and I wanted you to talk about it, the disparity between those who come out of prison who are not guilty and those who are in terms of post-release services. Would you be able to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So when people uh, are guilty and they do re-enter, there are a ton of uh, nonprofit organizations that deal with re-entry, but that's limited to people on parole and people on probation. Uh, exonerees are not within their mandate. I went to a number of prisoner reentry organizations and asked for help, and they told me that that's not what they were funded for. And my argument was, well, you are funded, though. You know, the lights are on, everybody's salaries are paid. Mm -hmm. You know, why? You know, why can't you just serve me anyway? I have many of the same reentry issues. So what if you can't cite me to the donors? But they weren't willing to. They weren't willing to go along with that argument. So the short answer in terms of who helped me is really nobody, or you could say a few people played minor roles just by committee, but there was no coordination. It was just more a matter of the right people came along at the right time and did a, you know, did, did, did a small portion. I mean, a religious community allowed me to, to stay in an apartment for four months, and then Mercy College, which had given me the scholarship, they allowed me to stay on campus, and then I stumbled and bumbled my way into human development services of Westchester. Uh, the Westchester Guardian newspaper had been founded a month before I had been released and, you know, they didn't have a full roster of writers. So they offered me uh, something. The I used to call the newspaper editor, uh, Richard Blasberg, maybe 10 or 15 times a week. And only three of them had anything even, you know, to do with the assignment. And I used to, and I frequently called the dean of the college, but there has not been really one particular person. There's certainly no structured, guided approach. You know what I what I found in my own life and in chatting with many other exonerees and people on parole is that uh, rather than a, a one-off appearance for one for, for one thing or another, what's most helpful is uh, somebody that operates in more of a cohort fashion where they stay in regular consistent touch so that offers some stability in an otherwise new and unstable world what if you could if you could make a list of things that are so important 
uh, when you come out of prison as an innocent person? Um, what would be things that um, are so desperately needed for people like that to re-enter society? Housing, cost of living expenses, doctor, dental, and mental health services, access to public transportation, classes on technology, job training, job placement. Very good. That's a. I'm sure that's not a complete list, but it's it's a start, right? Um, uh, Gia, do you want to weigh in on that topic and and uh, uh, say anything about what Jeff was just uh, talking about for the issues of reentry? You know, uh, Jeff is the expert there. I can't really speak to anything more than what Jeff said, but I will say, just talking to Jeff and hearing about his first day out, it, it's is beyond heartbreaking. He, you know, Jeff can speak to this, but when he was first told he was leaving, he didn't even believe it because it was just so hard to fathom. And uh, there's things like that, that when I was interviewing him, that really caught me off guard because I imagine for Jeff, it's all he ever wanted was to get out. Oh, I just said that, uh, you know, I imagine that those are the, the fact that Jeff was free. Those are the words that he had been wanting to hear for all those 16 years. But the trauma of it all was that when somebody said those words to him, he couldn't even believe them to be true. And it's just so beyond heartbreaking. Right. And, and Jeff, back to you. Um, we really haven't tapped into the whole concept of um, how you were exonerated. We're, we talked about, you know, what happened beforehand, and then certainly your reentry. But how did it happen? Because you mentioned all the appeals that didn't go anywhere. How did it happen that you were indeed exonerated? So when my appeals were over, uh, that, that, that had taken 11 years. Uh, mm -hmm. So when your appeals are over, you're permanently locked out of the courthouse unless you can find some previously unknown evidence of innocence, which would probably have resulted in a different outcome. I didn't have any money to hire a lawyer or an investigator, and neither did my family. So I embarked on a letter writing campaign trying to find an attorney or an investigator who could find some new evidence. So I wrote letters for four years, rarely getting responses other than the occasional no. Uh, eventually, one of those letters, uh, which I sent to a publish to an author in care of a publishing house, but someone at the publishing house sent it to an investigator, uh, Claudia Whitman. She uh, wrote me right away, and when I pro proved to her about the DNA not matching me, she believed in my innocence, and she suggested that I write the Innocence Project. Uh, for help. She lobbied them from outside their organization. She got other respected legal entities to also lobby them. And I got lucky that Maggie Taylor, who was a intake worker at the Innocence Project, uh, she presented my case to the Innocence Project's attorneys uh, a total of three times because they said no the first two times. Mm. Uh, and yeah, because they were, the issue for them was what could they do with the DNA that would constitute something new mm -hmm. in light of the fact that the DNA was already known by the jury, which had convicted me. So ultimately, uh, what they took it on the angle of the DNA data bank, which was an idea I had originally suggested. So that was their first key was obtaining the Linus's project legal representation. Second key 
was the former Westchester District Attorney who had taken office before my appeal was decided, who fought all of the appeals, who blocked the DNA testing, uh, Janine Pirro. She left office and her successor allowed me to get the further testing. And thirdly, we got lucky that the actual perpetrator's DNA was in the data bank. His DNA was in the data bank because left free while I was doing time for his crime, he killed a second victim uh, who, three and a half years later, who was a school teacher and had two children. Mm. So based on that, my conviction was overturned on uh, September 22nd, 2006. And then on November 2nd, 2006, the, all, all the charges against me were dismissed on actual innocence grounds. So it was a combination, I guess, of the Innocence Project in New York and the woman that you mentioned who was really your advocate that were those the uh, the reasons that you were exonerated, basically? They were, they, they were, but I do want to mention that the DA allowing me to have the testing mm. was a factor. Yes. And, then more, and then more importantly, her agreeing to have my conviction overturned and her agreeing that I was innocent. So that those are also factors because otherwise I would have had to litigate. And, you know, maybe I would have won or maybe I would have lost. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Now, the data bank, can you just very briefly, because we're almost out of time, um, explain what what that is, the data bank? Yeah, it, it's a data bank that has DNA profiles of people who are incarcerated for committing violent crimes or who previously mm -hmm. have been incarcerated for violent crimes. So oh, nice. we took the DNA. Yeah, so we took the DNA that originally didn't match me and we entered it was entered into that data bank and it matched the actual perpetrator. So in, in terms of the difference in my case, that meant that I was able to go from saying that it's not me to not only is it not me, but it's him. That's right. That's right. Uh, what a, what an incredible revelation. Oh, that's uh, that's so encouraging. The data bank is is fant a fantastic source. Well, we want to thank you both for being with us this week, and we still have uh, one more podcast to round out this series on Jeffrey Deskovic's case of wrongful conviction. I hope that my listeners will stay with us and come back and hear the final segment next week. So. Thank you both for being with me today, and thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.